everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm coming to you for a new series here at the So We Speak podcast. We've wrapped up our 66 books. We're still going to do some interviews. Of course, we'll still do current events, but kind of in the background, we like to have an ongoing series like we did for the last two or three years with these book overviews. We like to have something that we come back to, and for the next, I don't know, seven, eight, ten sessions in this series, we're going to be handling troubling texts in the Bible. So texts that are tricky, that are convoluted, that are difficult to interpret, difficult to ascertain what are these texts even saying, which is kind of what our text is for today. And so anyway, we've taken a couple of weeks to do some research and formulate uh, a few of these texts that we're going to do. We've also taken on Facebook a few suggestions. And if you have suggestions for difficult texts, go ahead and send those in. You can email or send them to us on Facebook or Twitter. Um, We love to hear what you want to talk, what you want us to talk about on the podcast. And uh, I think there's nothing better uh, to take your feedback on than these difficult texts. So I'm pretty excited about doing these. Same here. I think that the uh, difficult texts are worth looking at, but the approach that I think we're going to take is not so much just looking at them and trying to bring more information to them. We will do that. But really also trying to highlight to you, what do you do with these? Do you have to be a scholar to resolve this? Or how would you approach these texts? And I think that'll be helpful to everyone, is Mm -hmm. the way that you approach these texts. Well, and it's fun, too, because a lot of these texts are difficult because they get into obscure topics. I mean, if these were main uh, straight down the fairway topics and texts, they would not be tricky. And that's certainly the case with our text today. We're getting into some biblical marginalia that's pretty interesting to talk about because there's really not that much about it biblically. There's a little bit of mystery. And I think we want to preserve that too. I mean, there's always a sense of unknown when you get into things that are just barely mentioned in scripture. So uh, we're going to resist the urge to say, oh, this is 100% knowable, comprehensible when it's not. But we're also not going to shy away from saying, here's what we think this text is saying, given all the right. biblical evidence and uh, even extra biblical evidence that we can gather. So we're going to start today with a text from Jude. And uh, I might just add that Jude has got to be the most confusing text per capita in the New Testament, for sure. I mean, it's very short, and it has several obscure passages in it. So I don't even know if this is the trickiest text in Jude, but it's certainly a tricky text, and it's one that most people have thought about or heard of because it connects to another very difficult text in Genesis. So we're going to get there eventually, but uh, I thought this would be a great one to start with because you have a book at the beginning of the Bible and a book near the end of the Bible. You have angels and demons. You have all the ingredients for a great tricky text. Exactly. Uh, And, you know, you did you made a really good point, Cole, about there are different kinds of troubling or difficult texts. One is like this, where it just refers to something and you go to what is that referring? How do I know what is being talked about? But what are a couple other ways that texts can be difficult? Yeah, this is important, I think, because when you're approaching a difficult text, you need to know what is it you're looking for in an answer. So in this text, like you said, we're really just looking to say, what is this referring to? What is this talking about? And do we know what it's talking about? The second thing, the second example of a a text uh, that's difficult would be we know what it's saying. We just don't know what it means. We don't Mm -hmm. we don't know what how to construe this or how to fit it in with what else we know. So I had a, a text like this actually in the sermon 
last week in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says in Ephesians 3.10 that the purpose of the mystery of the gospel is to make known the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places through the church. Well, that's pretty obvious what it's saying. Rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are going to be wowed at the wisdom of God. But what does that actually mean? Right. I mean, that's a very, what, what do you mean he's displaying through the church to the heavenly powers? And who are these heavenly powers, by the way, and authority? Right. So that that's a text that's maybe kind of a different type of text is we know what it's referring to. We just don't quite know what it means. And then I would mention a third kind of difficult text, which is we know what it's saying. We know what it means. We just don't like it, or we just have a really hard time <laughs> right. squaring it theologically. And so the example uh-huh. I would give of this one, which we talked about in our book overviews, is the conquest of Canaan, for example. Okay, you have the Israelites that are commanded to kill women and children, leave no one alive in uh, the promised land. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. And of course, you have people like Richard Dawkins and others who will come along and say, well, this is just mass genocide. And you know, this obviously, if it is a God, it's kind of a moral monster type God. And so we're one thing you can do is say, well, the text doesn't say what it clearly says. That's not what most people do. Most people right. say, we do know what it says, and we know what that means historically. But how does this fit into the bigger biblical picture of God right. being loving and just and all of that? And so that one, you have to go even a step further and say, how do we fit it in with the rest of our theology? And those are really important texts. Those are really the kinds of texts we were trying to do in the book overviews, because when you're reading along, that's one of the first right. questions you have. But it's probably not the kind of text we're going to deal with most of the time in this series. Now, if we get tons of people suggesting one, then we obviously will. But I think here, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get at these texts where they are one of the first two kinds. What's it saying and what does it mean? Right. I agree. And, you know, by the standard you just painted, this is a nice one because the only thing we're asking here is what in the world is he talking about? Right. Right. And once you figure out what he is saying, it's theologically very cogent with everything yes. else we know. It's not a controversial right. text in that sense at all. So, well, let's dive in. So uh, let me give a little bit of a uh, running start to where we are in the book of Jude. So Jude is the brother of James. By implication, he's the half-brother of Jesus, and he's one of the pillars of the New Testament church in Jerusalem. And he's writing a letter here, and he does a little head fake at the beginning of this letter. In verse 3, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And that perks your antennas up a little bit and say, we're dealing with false teachers in this passage, mm-hmm. which you've got a pretty good shot at saying that in any New Testament epistle, because there's a lot of writing about false teachers. But you know when he says, I want you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints, that's a doctrinal statement. That's mm-hmm. We have people teaching things that we don't believe, that are not true Christianity. And I want to encourage you guys, you need to stand up and make sure everybody knows what's true and what's not true, especially in the days before they had a Bible like we do. So he says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I read this because it's really important that you catch this little detail, because this is one of the keys to unlocking this text is these are ungodly people who specifically, one of the charges specifically against them is they are perverting the grace of God 
into sensuality. That's going to come in big later because it's going to give us a clue about what this is talking about. So he says, now I want to remind you that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. We don't have to point out the fact that this is our troubling text. <laughs> just right. hearing that, you're, you're thinking to yourself, <laughs> what did he just say? What is going on here? And then I'll just read this next verse to complete this thought, this section of the letter. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Okay, so that's the context. And our tricky passage is, what is he talking about? With these angels who left their proper dwelling, they exceeded the bounds of their authority, and they have been kept in chains of darkness until that great day. So what what are we talking about here? A great point. And I would reiterate that as you look at this passage, you have the problem in verse four. You got false teachers that are telling you basically that it's okay to do sexual immorality. And then you have three examples of how it's not okay historically, that the people that came out of Egypt, but if they weren't obedient, they were destroyed. The angels that God created, well, if they weren't obedient, they were destroyed. Sodom and Gomorrah committed sexual immorality, and they were destroyed. So he just wants to reassure them that these teachers will get what they deserve. So you at least understand that much. And I think that's important, is even if you don't know what he's talking about about these angels, the point of the passage is well said. Let me interject here. Yeah, go ahead. This this passage, this is just a sidebar here, but it's become popular in, I haven't seen this much in the scholarly world, but it's been popular in some sermons and writings and things in the wake of the sexual revolution to say that Sodom and Gomorrah actually were not condemned for sexual immorality. They were condemned for being unhospitable. And uh, I always kind of chuckle when I hear this because, uh, yes, they were unhospitable. But the way that they were unhospitable was through these morally heinous sexual acts that they committed. And one of the principles that's going to be really helpful in deciphering some of these tough texts is we always want to have Scripture interpret Scripture, right? If there, if Scripture somewhere else interprets a passage, then you want to go with that as the Holy Spirit-inspired reading of that passage. And honestly, sometimes that's difficult because... New Testament writers, and I think they're, if, if you go down deep enough, you can see that there is a real logic to the way that they interpret texts. But sometimes a New Testament author will come around and say something about an Old Testament text where you're thinking to yourself, I don't know if I ever would have gotten that from the original. And like I say, right. I don't think they're pulling things out of thin air. Don't hear me say that uh, you mm-hmm. wouldn't get it out of the original. I think if you knew what they knew and you were in the culture they were in, thinking about what they were thinking about, you would draw similar conclusions. But from our vantage point, every now and then they pull out an Old Testament text and then you look back at the context and you say, I don't know that I would have seen that connection there like they did. Right. So what we have to do is we have to conform our reading to the way that they're reading. So instead of saying, I don't think that's what that means, we come back and say, what do I need to know to see why they think that's what that means? So this text right here, because of uh, Scripture interpreting Scripture, we can take Jude's word for it that it was sexual immorality. And it's going to be a theme in this passage that actually these examples point us to instances of sexual immorality that are helpful in understanding what these uh, specific instances he's referring to are. 
Well, you know, and, and that's a great lead in because when I read this passage and I go, well, I understand the point he's making uh, about, you know, false teachers teaching about sexual immorality. They'll be punished like everyone has been. God is consistent. But I asked myself this question. I don't know what he's talking about, about these angels who didn't stay in their own position of authority, but did something wrong. And so I asked myself, where else in the Bible do I know that angels did something wrong? They were disobedient, and it might have uh, likely involved sexual immorality. And I don't know about you, but the first thing that comes to my mind is another cryptic passage way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 6. And I'll just read you this part in chapter 6, verse 1. You read uh, this, when man began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, many people understand that to be angels, the creation of God, saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And then it goes on to say that the result of their union were these giants, these Nephilim. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. And so then you get the flood. And so what is that event? Well, it seems to be talking about angels, and they are doing something sexually immoral with human women. And in some sense, that seems to be corrupting humanity. Now, where would you take it from there? And what at that point, I would start looking into the literature and saying, wow, those two, is there a possible connection there? And I think when you look into commentaries, you'll see that most commentators say it sure seems like there is because it seems like the Jews of the day of Jude thought that that's what Genesis 6 was talking about. Angels leaving their proper function, doing something sexually immoral and corrupting humanity. So on the surface, it looks like there's a connection. Where do you where do you go from there, Cole? Well, I think this is just a good principle in general is you have to get a little bit analytical into what are the components here and what would be something that would fit. You know, what would be something that mm -hmm. uh, not only would our author know and be able to refer to and so this is where the commentators are really helpful. Uh, but also what fits the bill biblically, because sometimes what happens is our minds kind of jump to, OK, we got angels and whatever conception we have of angels then fills in the gaps. Um, mm -hmm. And and I will say when it comes to angels, demons, heaven, hell, new heavens and the new earth, all of that is often more influenced by things like Paradise Lost or the Left Behind novels or pop culture uh, representations of these things. So we have to get pretty analytical and say, no, but what what stories in the Bible have all of these factors in them rather than something I might bring out of my own uh, reading into the text? Exactly. And, you know, again, this was the first connection I made in my head of what other story do I know that had these these elements in it, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily connected. But then I would do a little more research, and I think you and I know, and if you read a commentary, this will come up very quickly, is that what did the Jews of that time think about Genesis 6? Well, uh, it, depending on you know, who you look at, but everybody's going to mention a, a book 
that is not in the Bible called First Enoch. First Enoch is one of those books written in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I would say around 200 BC, but basically written between the Old and New Testament. And it's mythical. It's not inspired by God. But it takes that Genesis 6 passage and really expands it and says, you know, actually, the angels were supposed to be helping humanity, but then they decided that they were going to teach them all kinds of stuff like sorcery and other things. And they were going to mate with the human women and they were going to corrupt humanity. And instead of helping humanity, they were going to get humanity to serve them. And the book of Enoch goes into all of this. So first of all, you realize Jude and every other Jew uh, of of that time period, this is what they thought Genesis 6 was talking about. And then Enoch goes on to say that God said, wait a minute, you guys have rebelled and I'm going to imprison you for the day of judgment that's coming. When you read the book of Jude, you realize there are phrases in there that sound like they could come right out of the book of Enoch. So again, I'm not saying this is a certainty, but it sure sounds like uh, Jude is describing this event in Genesis 6 as they understood it, as a rebellion by the angels to corrupt humanity and God thereby punishing those angels for that. Mm-hmm. Where would you go from there, Cole? Yeah, that's, I think, probably the base layer of any real understanding of what Jude is doing here. And then from there, you can take it a couple of different directions. Um, a book that we've referred to before on the podcast that is really an interesting book, and I recommend it with a few hesitations, is The Unseen Realm by Michael mm-hmm. Heiser. Great scholar, really interesting stuff. His contention is that we downplay the supernatural world of the Bible as Western Christians. We don't understand the way that people in the ancient Near East would have thought about supernatural beings, which is as a hierarchy. So you have God, who is the only uncreated being. And I think people get a little nervous when you start talking about other gods, lowercase g gods, Mm -hmm. uh, because we only have one God. Well, yes, that's true. There's only one eternal sovereign God, triune God. But there are other beings who are created that are different than human beings. And so we would consider them supernatural beings, gods with a lowercase g in the sense that they wield significant power over the earth compared to humans. And Heiser really wants to play up this kind of divine council and uh, the hierarchy of the gods and the regional gods of the area. And so he thinks that the theme that starts in Genesis chapter 6 where you have the sons of God, which is actually these kinds of angelic supernatural beings, they produce another line of offspring with human women who are the Nephilim. You mm-hmm. get these giants, you get these mighty men, you have other sources outside the Bible who are saying things like this. So like in the Epic of Gilgamesh, for example, Gilgamesh is a giant and he right. is a mighty man. And actually people have thought that maybe uh, Nimrod in the following chapters of Genesis is mm-hmm. another name for Gilgamesh right? or some other ancient epic uh, hero. So you have the same thing with se- several other stories in the Bible, like the flood, and maybe there's some overlap here. Um, but But basically what you have is you have this race of giants who are very powerful, who are kind of what we would say 
borrowing some something from Greek mythology are kind of demigods. Right. And uh, the whole story of the Old Testament, especially the land of Canaan, the conquest of the land of Canaan is that God is triumphing over all these other regional gods. And uh, one of the things that the Israelites are supposed to do is not just conquer the Canaanites, they're supposed to conquer these Nephilim and the Rephaim and all these branches mm-hmm. of what started in Genesis chapter 6. Now, that's an interesting reading of Genesis 6, and I think it does make sense of a couple of things in the Old Testament that don't really fit. Um Right. His his stuff, for example, we, I don't think we'll get to this um, much more in this episode, but maybe we'll do an episode on this. But when when you hear uh, things like Bashan in the Old Testament, there's always kind of a uh, looming spiritual evil cast about it. And Heiser has an explanation for that, but that's where they thought the headquarters of some of these evil uh, angel human being uh, rulers would live. And so there's there's all kinds of stuff you can get into. So I would say maybe his is the strongest version of this supernatural, there's a lot more going on here than just what's happening on earth uh, version of this. Then I think maybe you could take a more minimalist view of this and say, okay, whatever happened after Genesis chapter six, however that translates into events on earth, what the passage in Jude is really talking about is what happened to the sons of God who mated with the daughters of men? What happened to them? Because that's that's what Jude is really talking about, is they were kept in gloomy darkness, in chains, until the awaited day. So God is punishing them, and in fact, they aren't doing anything else after this story. They are put in prison until the day of uh-huh. judgment. So you can actually say, I don't follow Heiser at all on this supernatural thing, other than the fact that this really does seem like uh, rebellious angels, supernatural beings uh, who've come down and who have produced another line uh, to rival the line of Seth and thwart the plans of God. Now, I'll give a third. I'll give a third reading of this that you might do that actually is different than these other two. And some mm-hmm. people have said that these are not supernatural beings at all in Genesis chapter six. These are sons of God, as in good, morally upright people. They are uh, mating with the daughters of men who are not. They are these are uh, worldly people. These are fleshly people, and there's not an angel component in this at all. And some people read this text uh, that way as well. So those are three kind of ways to jump off of what you were talking about. Uh, with and they have relative merits. I think some are more likely than others, but some of this comes down to: Do you or do you not think that Jude is referring to Enoch? First Enoch. And if he is, that that makes number three uh, a no-go. Right. Probably leans a little bit more towards Heiser's view, if you just accept all of kind of what First Enoch says, and makes it a little bit less likely for number two. But I want to pose another question about First Enoch and say, is it okay, or what do we make of the fact that Jude may be referring to an uninspired book, now does he kind of make it inspired or does he, by borrowing some of that narrative, make it true? What's the effect if he is quoting from first Enoch? That is a very fine pointed question. And I'll just give you a plain answer. I believe that he most certainly is referring to Enoch and the mythical expansion of the true account in Genesis six. So you have Genesis 6, which is true, it's in the Bible, it's inspired, that really happened. There's an expansion of that text. Think of it as like 
a sermon series where somebody took a lot of license and says, here's what I think happened. And it's generally in agreement with Genesis 6. It just goes way beyond what the text says. There's no question in my mind that that, that Jude knew that, that that was the prevailing opinion of the day, that yes, those were angels. Yes, they rebelled and mated with human women. And yes, God punished them. Now, the fact that Jude, he, so that part of what he's referring to is true. The fact that he's also quoting or at least alluding to a, a non-biblical book to make his point does not concern me because he's not saying, uh, and you notice that he doesn't get very specific. When you read First Enoch, and you can, but wait till you've read the Bible first. When you read First Enoch, they're going to name these angels. I mean, there's a lot of mythology. Nothing in here says Jude bought into that. He just is saying, look, you know that Genesis 6 said this happened, and we all understand that this is what it means, that it's an example of disobedience. So I do think he's alluding to a non-biblical book, but I don't think the fact that he alludes to it means he's validating everything that First Enoch says. Right. But expand on that a little bit, because you will see occasionally where the Bible will allude to uh, understanding of certain issues that aren't in the Bible without necessarily validating them or saying, thus says the Lord. Right. Yeah, I, I would not disagree with that at all. I think this is something where he's reaching into the popular understanding of what these passages mean and using that to make the point that people that rebel against God, people that stand in God's way will be punished. I mean, that's the right. overall point here, whether it's a false teacher, whether it's Israelites, whether it's angels, whether it's Sodom and Gomorrah, it doesn't matter. If you thwart the plan of God, if you teach people to uh, that it's okay to walk in sexual immorality, you will be punished by God. So I, I think that said, uh, that's the main emphasis that Jude has, and he's appealing to something that may be outside of the Bible to make that point, which I think is is totally fine. It doesn't mean that the rest of First Enoch is necessarily accurate. I would take an example that we just assume that might be similar to this in our churches today is we take history and tradition about how the apostles died and reapply them back onto scripture. So we'll talk right. all the time about, you know, Paul was martyred in Rome by Nero. And when you're reading Second Timothy, it really sounds like that is imminent. We know that's what happened to him. Well, we don't really know that that's what happened to him from scripture. Right. But we have a pretty good sense that that happened historically or something like it. And we go ahead and incorporate that into how we read the Bible. But if somebody that was an ultra biblicist came along and said, you cannot say that all the apostles were martyr in this way and that way, because it doesn't say that in the Bible. It only says that a couple of, we only know how a couple of them died. We don't right. know how the rest of them died. We get no word on how Paul died or how Peter died in the New Testament. And so we should leave that as an open question. I would mm -hmm. make, this is basically the equivalent. Now, First Enoch is a little bit more elaborate than that, but Jude right. is basically pointing to something that most people know that's really not a controversial thing. It's not overly speculative to say that God's going to punish these rebellious angels. It is right. you know, a little bit more speculative to say, you know, their first, last, and middle name, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's not that speculative to say that this is what happened to these rebellious angels. And so he's appealing to that to make this point. Right. Yeah, I would. I agree with you. I don't see a, an issue with that. But I do think it's important to talk about this because I think you can watch a History Channel documentary and they're going to probably make you feel like, well, you know, your New Testament's not reliable because they're 
referring to non-biblical books. And uh, I, I agree with your explanation. We do that all the time, and we don't necessarily validate the traditions. We use them to illustrate something. And he, too, was using their popular understanding to illustrate uh, a biblical point, is that God will judge those who are sexually immoral. Right. So what I want to do in each one of these episodes is, uh, in this one, it's a little more obvious, I think, kind of laying out the different solutions, what we think about this. But basically, if you go through an overview of the passage and why it's a tough text, and then you present the possible ways of reading it, give us your take on where you would come down on this passage. Which of the opportunities that we've, or which, which of the different kind of avenues for interpretation that we've gone down, would you say this is the likeliest way to interpret this text? Yeah, for me, I I do think, I agree with your point, even though the New Testament says this over and over, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers in the heavenly realms. There really are powers that are supernatural. And by that, all I mean is beyond our four-dimensional reality here, you know, angels, etc., fallen angels, and that that's real. And that we're actually playing a little 4D chess here. We're playing our faith actually impacts the other realm. And that's all over the New Testament. But I don't think we really think about it that way. Well, Jude definitely thought about it that way. And consequently, it, it doesn't bother him at all to use an example of angels to illustrate a point, because that's just as real as what happened to the Israelites to him. So I come down on the, yes, there is indeed a, a realm beyond this realm happening here. And so I think he's, uh, actually, I think he's very well acquainted as you go through the rest of the book with more than just First Enoch. I think he's very well acquainted with the thinking of the time from several books in the uh, intertestamental period. But I think he's using the points that they make to make biblical points. So yes, I think he's, he's citing the current understanding of Genesis 6 to support his point that God will punish false teachers who teach sexual immorality. Mm -hmm. That's probably the way I would come down on that. And you know, I'll ask you the same question, but one thing, another text that's going to jump to some people's mind when they hear this, I know I'm going backwards just a little bit, but this idea of angels and humanity, this also brings up the idea of he's using some human examples and some angelic examples. And a lot of people wrestle with this idea of what is the relationship between humans and angels? And you know, the passage that comes to my mind is Psalm 8. Do you think Psalm 8 sheds any light on this whole, you know, why angels, why us, and what is our relationship with them? Yeah, I do think that that's an informative passage. I think on the whole topic of what is the role of angels, what are they supposed to be doing, what are we doing in reference with them? Why do you have places where it says things like salvation is something that angels long to look into? Uh, mm -hmm. I think Psalm 8 is an explanatory psalm for this in the sense that it lays out that uh, man was created for a short time a little lower than the angels and then was crowned with glory and honor. Of course, this is applied to Christ in the book of Hebrews. But I think it's even more universal than that. Christ being the perfect human being arrived at glory and honor, and he's ascended to the right hand of the Father 
in a perfect sinless way. He is the triumphant one who's reigning. And we will do the same thing with him. This is another thing I think we downplay in the New Testament is we are sons, therefore heirs. We are daughters, therefore heirs. I mean, this is part of being in the family of God is we will reign with Christ. So I think Psalm 8 applies to us as well. And I think it gives a good insight into what actually happened with the fall, quote unquote, the fall of the angels. And uh, another text I'll tie in here is in Second Peter, which some some people might remember this from our podcast on Second Peter and on Jude. Second Peter and Jude are thought to be dependent on each other. Mm-hmm. People argue over which one is more, uh, which one was written first, and primary all of that. Yeah. I, I would just go back to the fact that if these people were teaching together in the Jerusalem church for any amount of time. They were sharing some illustrations. They were probably reading mm-hmm. the same stuff. They might have been in a book group that was going through First Enoch at the time, and so they were both thinking about that. And they have all kinds of similarities between Second Peter and Jude, and there may be some literary dependence one way or the other. But this same example is used in Second Peter chapter 2. There, it's a little bit less specific and maybe even more open-ended because what Peter says is, for if God, this is in First Peter 2, or Second Peter 2, uh, verse four, for if, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. Now he's going to use some different examples. He's going to say, and if he did not spare the ancient world in the days of Noah, this is giving a little bit of credence to what Michael Heiser is saying. And right. if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, then he knows how to preserve the godly for himself. That's the point that Peter makes. Very similar, a little bit different. You might read this one and think this is just talking about the fall of angels in general. They just sinned, and therefore they were cast Mm -hmm. into hell. The other tricky part about that passage is that word for hell is the Greek word Tartarus. Right. Which you probably know from from the movie Hercules, uh, that this is where the (laughs) Titans were (laughs) sent. So that creates other issues. But I I think they're referring to the same thing. I don't think they're referring to a fall of the angels, if by that you mean before humanity was created, Satan and the angels rebelled, and God cast them down. I think it means a fall of the angels like what we read about in Genesis chapter 6, elucidated by Psalm chapter 8, which would be the angels were supposed to be tutors. They were supposed Mm -hmm. to be trainers. Uh, Satan himself in the garden likely was not there to tempt in the beginning. He was likely there to be like an older brother, bringing Mm -hmm. humanity along to be the crown of God's creation. Satan decides he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to be surpassed by human beings. He wants to oppress human beings. He wants to take human beings for himself so that he can be his own God. And so his end game is, well, God created these people to be his crowning perfect creation. And what's going to end up happening is all of these creatures are going to end up worshiping me instead. And then we'll see right. what God does about that. So I think, and, and this makes sense of, of some of the other parts too, where you see Satan being an accuser, for example, in the court of God, Satan being in God's counsel in the opening parts of the book of Job. Book well, of maybe Job, that was yeah. his job and he decided he didn't really want to do his job for God's purposes. He wanted to do it for his own purposes, and that's how he became the devil. That's how he became the enemy. You know, he sinned in that way. And so I would say we take those passages together and we say, oh, this shows that the angels were supposed to be teaching humanity good things, right? We see Mm -hmm. that angels are actually the mediators, and they bring word of the old covenant in the book of Hebrews, 
and the angels that sinned instead of being faithful deliverers and uh, honoring the message of God have brought their own message, which is sin, rebel against God, practice sexual immorality. They actually do practice sexual immorality with Mm -hmm. beings in that passage in Genesis. And so I think that fleshes out what Jude is really talking about here is just like the angels that rebelled and didn't want to stay within their proper role, which was to train up humanity in the knowledge of God, they rebelled and they will be punished for teaching humanity what they taught them. That was a sin against God. So that, that'd be my take. I'm not going to go full Heiser on this, but I'm maybe three quarters. Yeah. Well, you know, one final point I would make on this, and that is I can imagine some people, and I've been there uh, in, earlier in my life where I would listen and I would say, how do you make these connections in the Bible? How do you think about Psalm 8 while you're reading? I mean, I, I vividly remember this after I became a Christian, listening to pastors or other people, and I'd say, wow, it never occurred to me. Uh, that Psalm 8 talked about this, or Genesis 6 talked about this. And, you know, what I learned over time was it's it's not anything supernatural. It's just a matter of reading your Bible. But one of the things that helped me the most was reading my Bible through every year. And just over time, you will make those connections. And so I think it's pretty impressive listening to you. People go, wow, I wish I could connect that. Well, you really can. You just read your Bible. And uh, over time, your brain will make those connections. And by the way, a plug for an article, a blog you wrote on SoWeSpeak.com about reading plans. And you gave several good reading plans. But I, I don't know what you think about this. But for me, remembering back when I was a, a new Christian, when I would hear that, I think, well, I'll never be able to make those connections. But you really can. You just read through your Bible and time will will do a lot for you. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think cross-references can be really helpful, too. If you have a Bible that has cross-references, you know, that's somebody who's basically saying, here's where we see some parallels, and uh, that doesn't mean that they're getting everything in there, but it's a good way to start to connect parts of your Bible together. And then the other thing is, yeah, in, in that reading plan article that I was putting together, one of the things that was really helpful for me about the plans that have you read maybe a couple of chapters in the Old Testament in two different places in the New Testament is they're not arranged this way, but it's amazing how often just by correlation, yeah. something that you read in the Old Testament happen. really connects with something that you read in the New Testament. And so giving yourself the opportunity to be in both at the same mm-hmm. time, as opposed to just reading straight through something, which is also good, uh, that really helps as well. If you do that for a year, a couple of years in different plans, Get yourself in the Old Testament, the New Testament on different passages on different days, and you'll see some connections really pop up, and uh, you'll start to see the whole picture in a different way than you used to. Well, Cole, I'm glad we started with a relatively easy one, because I know that uh, they make it a little harder from here. So I'm looking forward to to the next one. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.